0: Hi, my name is Michael Frank, and this is the Prefab Pod presented by Prefab Review, where we interview leading people and companies in the prefab housing industry. Today, we're speaking with Joseph Tanney of Resolution for Architecture, also known as Res4, a firm based out of New York. Joseph, welcome.
1: Ah, nice to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's our, it's our pleasure. Um, Joseph, uh, to start, um, I know you literally wrote the book on... Uh, uh modular housing but uh can you start and just tell me a little bit about your background and how you uh became involved in modular architecture
1: well we started doing research into uh into modular offsite construction construction about 2002 right after 9-11 and i think i should back up we started our practice in 1990 so there's a, a number of things that sort of led to this um And uh, the first 10 years of our practice, really, we're a small office and we do a lot of small, like many small offices in the city, uh, interior renovations. And we'd start off with kitchens and bathrooms and they'd grow to apartment renovations and grow a little bit more. Um, And so we had this interest because the spaces are so limited in New York and the, the square footage is so expensive, that we sort of develop this, this efficiency of, you know, trying to pack in as much space, as much stuff as we can into every space.
0: And, then, and just in our this is specifically just because we have a kind of a national audience this is specifically for like high rises in Manhattan and places like that. Right. Uh,
1: loft buildings and various high rises. Yeah. Different low rise buildings, mid rise. Yeah. A whole series of them here in the city. Yep. And it, we did a lot of interior renovation, so we really sort of honed our craft in terms of built-ins. You know, we do, we do a lot of cabinetry and build in a lot of the furniture and tables and millwork and everything because it'd be limited space and it'd also be limited time in which you're allowed to actually build something in a, in a co-op. So we started to rely heavily on, on built-in cabinets because they were much more efficient that way. We could build the majority of the project off-site and therefore be a lot more f- efficient. On site, And so in about, you know, we had been done, we had done quite a, quite a bit of this the first 10 years. And then after 9 11, all of our work went on hold, everything. And at that time we were also had just started working on a house upstate and, um, began to realize how frustrating it was to actually find competent contractors outside of the city that had the same sense of urgency in other words, when you build small spaces in New York, the the coordination in terms of what bits show up when, and so you're not having too many uh, materials and things like that inside the apartment or going up in the elevator. So the logistics of the execution of actually putting something together is, needs to be heavily planned out. And we found that working outside of the city with some of these residential GCs, there was a lack of urgency. There was a lack of rigor. There was just a lack of intensity in terms of how you make something from nothing. Um, And we had a little extra time on our hands because all of our other projects had gone on hold. So we started looking, um, we started doing some research into offsite construction and started you know, it was sort of our preoccupation with, you know, cabinetry and off-the-shelf off materials and sort of, you know, long linear loft spaces that we had been working on that we felt this sort of kindred spirit um, with mo- the limits imposed by modular. So that's how it started. To, our work was on hold. We had time. We started looking into more, more things um, utilitarian in nature, if you will, at the time. Um, And our research just, um, you know, we looked into and contacted as many factories as we could. And what we found was that, you know, you probably know this, within this sort of sphere, within this umbrella of this term everybody uses, you know, prefab, there's, the way we see it, there's basically three tiers. You know, on, on one end of the spectrum, you know, you have HUD, you know, it's sort of a glorified trailer, but it's a very affordable means for many Americans uh, to yeah, have housing. housing yep and that it, uh, but it's you know low cost but low opportunity to in, improve upon the design mm-hmm. and uh, on the fo- other side of the spectrum you have a kit of parts or a panelized if you will and um, we've we've done a, several dozen of those projects as well but the the one we felt the most kindred spirit with was modular right in the middle because of the because of the sort of um, long linear limitations, very similar to to a loft, but we the the restrictions and the uh, the uh, are 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 very um, defined, if you will, so you understand you're working within these limits, very similar to working within a loft. So it, it was a very natural extension of our practice um, to sort of become, uh, you know. D- to to use this as a as a limiting tool in design, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, it, it, t- it totally makes sense, especially when you think about like row houses, are in some ways <laughs> structurally very similar to a bunch of bunch of modules one on they top are. of another.
1: As as our lofts and we've done quite a few brownstone renovations as well. And and ultimately, our as our practice grew and our clients grew, and they began to sort of move outside of the city. Um, a few of our clients, right at that time. We're like man, we want, we just want to get out of the city wouldn't it be great if you just took that loft you did for us and just parked it out in the woods in New Jersey? and so yep. there was a number of things that sort of instigated our looking into it, just our natural preoccupation with it um and then literally some clients you know bringing it up as a as a joke um, but the more we the more factories we were able to talk to and we we literally went around the country knocking on doors you know, getting in whoever would listen to us. Um, most modular factories, especially back then, did not have a, they had no need for architects and nor did they, nor did they. Right. Like, nor did they right I mean, the economy is doing a one-off that, project
0: is still, it's still a hard sell for some of them, right? Because they're like, oh, you know, name your mass market company wants to build a hundred of the same type <laughs> and you want to build one of these things that's whatever, 5,000 square feet or 3,000 square feet.
1: Well, that's what's interesting is that the more factories that let us in the door and the more we really understood how they operated, a lot of the higher end, first of all, I I just want to say that um, we were doing a lot of this heavy, heavy uh, 2002. And what we found was in this sort of in the modular realm at the time, there was, it depends on how they classified themselves, say one to 200 modular factories in the country. And what we found is that the majority, both in quantity and quality, we found right in our backyard in Pennsylvania. Yeah, there's and a couple. As you went further south and further west, that quantity and quality just began to vaporize. You get to Indiana and you have a lot of manufactured homes. And at the time in California, I think there were maybe five. Um, and they were all manufactured homes. There's very little modular happening. And the the majority of it was concentrated in the Northeast. So that gave us the opportunity to visit a few more factories um, right here in our backyard. And began to learn what their process is and what their limits are. And the, the Petter ones did not, they were, they were very proud of themselves that they were not doing cookie cutters, that they were doing custom homes, even if it just meant moving a wall or a window. So that allow us to tap into that and say, well, we're doing the same thing. You know, here's so we, we were working with them because we, we had posted, we had done this research and we posted some concepts on our website and we started getting uh, immediately, we started getting uh, hits in terms of people asking how do we get one? In the yeah. beginning we posted it as an idea, as a concept just to see what we could do with this research and these ideas about working within the limits of the modular industry. So as you say a one off what we developed instead was a our intention was developed a method a system by which we could design and spit out let's say a one off by using the methods of mass production in other words this idea of mass customization came out in about the mid 90s and the idea is that you can create a one off something specific using methods of mass production. So that's what we focused on as opposed to trying to design this year's model, a house to be sold, a product to be sold. We focused instead on a process, a process of design that would allow us to design site-specific modern homes for you know for uh, individual clients and uh, various budgets in different locations.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. And um, obviously, it was, sounds like it was very innovative at the time. Um, I've read a little bit about every, what you all did in terms of, I'll, I'll, I'll give a quick um, insufficient understanding of what I know, and then maybe you can elaborate more. Kind of the idea, I think it's called modules of use, right? Which it seems like are kind of flexible components of sort of the core things to have in the house, which I think is some of what you're alluding to in terms of sort of your system of production. Um, do you think you can explain a little more about sort of what you all figured out and developed and how you still use those today?
1: Well, the, the, the modules of use, yes, they're, uh, the idea starts with, um, the limits, um, determined by the department of transportation on what you can ship down the back of the highway. And that's basically, you know, 16 feet wide, um, 11 feet high and 60 feet long in general. It changes per county. And so it's within those limits that we started to look to see what, as you said, what we could, what we could, uh, within those limits, you know, what kind of house can we actually begin to design? And then we started to break these things down into their different components that we started to call modules of use, kitchens, you know, communal, modules, kitchens, kitchen, dining, and, uh, and, and living typically in private modules of bedrooms and bathrooms. And they were just simple exercises of understanding, you know, the relationships and the scale of these pieces based on what you would actually need for cabinets and couches and chairs and bathtubs and showers and beds and closets and everything that you would need. These elements, they actually have to have, whether it's a loft, a house, These are elements one needs to make it domestic. So we started focusing on those pieces and began to find these, you know, we call them emerging patterns. Basically, they're a series of guidelines and they base on cabinets and widths of of corridors and and various sort of um, common denominators in terms of how one would lay out a domestic space. And so we thought of these contiguous relationships within the limits of each module. And when the programmer requirements would grow outside of the limits of a module, then we started looking at the various combinations of both two-dimensional and three-dimensional massing studies. And that's where we developed this idea of a type. So we started with very small and grew up to, to an unlimited idea. And we took an unlimited idea at the same time and tried to break it down into its most essential components. And so it's it's the modules of use they're conceptual building blocks they're not you know they're not uh physical building blocks of implementation so we we design with these limits in mind, and the actual fabrication of the boxes vary relative to a whole series of other things okay.
0: um that makes sense, so in terms of where your practice has evolved to today. Um, obviously like I'm on your website right now, I see all sorts of beautiful single family homes as well as, uh, a variety of a couple other types of projects. Are you mostly doing single family residences now, or, or do you still do a variety?
1: Oh, we do a variety of things, but I think the majority of our work is single family residence. We have on average about 15 to 20 projects going on at any time. Half of those are usually modular. Um, the other half is often split between uh, site-built homes, and/or an apartment renovation, loft renovation, or you know, we're doing right now a couple of mid-century modern renovations up in Westchester. Uh, we're doing, uh, I think, three site-built homes with prefabricated components down in um, down in Florida. So we we do a wide range of things. It's just and again, we're we're architects, so we're a little bit different in this space of prefab in that we don't sell any boxes or modules. Our, we uh, f- design what we think is the best bang for the buck and identify the appropriate fulfillment partners so we can we can deliver the highest value proposition possible. and it prefab isn't necessarily it every time. That's a, a really, really important thing to to note,
0: yeah, so. <laughs> we we find that out not all the time but sometimes um and it i'd say the denom the biggest reason we usually find out that at least uh, let's say let's group modular a little differently than panelized but that modular often doesn't work for some people is because of the uh access needed um Mm -hmm. ends up being like prohibitive or complicated just especially like like we've done a bunch of projects in like on the West Coast, at least in like Tahoe and in Marin and places where it can be kind of tricky getting, you know, <laughs> a forty yeah. foot long is modular. Um, yeah. Is that the, the key reason that you end up uh, sort of moving towards site built
1: um, in those situations, uh, or are there one, other? Well, that, that's absolutely that's one of the limits of modular construction. There are some other things just in terms of if you really want to leverage the modern methodology of delivery, you need to be sure you're working within those limits. Not only, you know, cranes and telephone wires and hills and size of boxes, but also in terms of products. It's really important to understand um, the, the reason why modular is so effective is because the implementation is so efficient. And the reason why the implementation can be so efficient is when everything is fully coordinated. And it's not just about the box. It's also about the setting of the box, the finishing of the box, the performance of the box. So there's a lot of other things that that come into play to sort of determine if we're going to do as modular, panelized, hybrid, or a site built home. A lot of it also has to do on, you know, not only the location, but the client access to the particular contractors in that particular location, um, a number of things have an impact on it makes sense can you talk about
0: the process of someone working with you um yeah so oftentimes people who come to our site are you know are sort of f- trying to figure out whether they should work with an architect whether they should work with a design build firm mm. whether they should you know work with kind of a, a like a non custom plan etc but so we, we don't have to talk about those options at least in your case yeah how how does it start um in terms of your interaction uh, once, so once a client signs up, and let's just say you deem it to be feasible, is a site mm-hmm. visit next? Uh, yeah, what what are the steps?
1: Um, well, there's a a, a variety of things that happen. Um, we first do due diligence on the site. Right. At first we have a meeting of the minds, even before we get signed up, we go through an understanding of what the program is, what the process is, what their budget is, the realities of that budget on this particular site. So we have quite a dialogue uh, interaction with the client, even before we put together a proposal to get signed up. And so one of the first things after we understand we're in the realm of possibility here, um, then we start doing due diligence on the site in terms of zoning, what are the setbacks, what are limitations, lot coverage, pyramid rule, et cetera. And we go through the process the same as we would when we site build it in terms of identifying all the constraints and then using our discretion within. And those have to do also with the client's needs and their budgets and their expectations. So a lot of that has an impact. So there's a lot of discussions of what's potential. And we start very, very general and we get incredibly specific. The overall process typically is four phases of four months each. So the first phase, we spend a lot of time with the client designing their home, um, specifying everything down to, you know, every toilet paper holder, towel bar. We know every outlet, every dimmer, every window that opens. We know, you know, towel bars, towel hooks. They take off their shoes. Where are you going to charge your your phone at night? Um, How many kids, how many friends? We go through a a sort of an extensive process of just developing a program together. And then the process begins as any other process through, you know, sketches and then models. And by the end of that first phase, we have a complete set of documents that we send to for the factory to the factory for pricing. And when the pricing, when we get pricing back from the factory, and it's in line with our expectations, then we it starts into phase two, which we spend a lot of time then with the uh, factory and the uh, the engineers. And we go through the coordination, and do the systems built approval. Because as you know, even though the the boxes you know they get built in a factory, the inspections are done in the factory for state approvals, and it varies. And while that's happening, we're also putting together a bid set, of drawings for a GC. We find three to five local guys, we vet them, we meet them, we talk to, talk it through with them, see if they're actually capable. So, um, so one question.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so, so you're doing the. Are you getting bids from uh, the factory before having full construction docs, Is that what you're saying?
1: Oh yeah, we do a full set of factory drawings first to make sure we have we know what the costs are coming out of the factory. And okay. the, so you, you sort of get
0: module costs first, and then you do full engineering, yeah. and then you get local yeah. local costs
1: because of the the process. So that that's the other thing when it's it's absolutely a process, and so there's many things happening at the same time, and that's that's what. Um, you know, allows for, for quite a bit of the efficiency. Mm-hmm. That makes sense.
0: Okay. So then, and then you, uh, and then are you handling So then I get, so you, you get multiple bids, you hire your local GC. Um, and that, yeah, we create uh,
1: a little matrix and level them. So we pick the right guy at the right time for the right price right. for the right job. Makes it's sense. really important that the fulfillment partner is, is really, really key. Do they have to have great boxes? We prefer that they don't. mm -hmm. Most people that have experience with modular, their expectations aren't as high as ours. So we like to find, you know, again, three to five local people, if you will. They live in the area. Their kids are going to go to the same school. They're going to shop in the same grocery store. So if you bump into them on the street, (laughs) we want them to hold their head up high and be proud and not like run away. So it's definitely a vetting process to find the right fulfillment partner.
0: Um, And 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 you're you're doing the set and the install, like they're not doing that, right? You're doing that or you're working with some specialist vendor.
1: No, it's, we, we control the whole process. It's the only way this stuff works because not everybody understands the bits and pieces that need to be, to be coordinated and related when, and that's what, that's what, if, if it's not a fully integrated process, modular construction's a nightmare. If it's fully coordinated from the first idea all the way through move-in, it's really quite amazing. It's really a special thing. It's easier, in a sense, to site build something if you just make decisions you know, as you go along, because there's all kinds of opportunities for delay. But when you build something in a factory, everything needs to be completely specified, but more importantly, thought out. Because it takes more time, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's than it actually takes to actually build the boxes. So there's an excessive amount of planning and coordination that goes goes into it in in advance. And that's happening during phase two. So at the end of phase two, got everybody lined up. We have our local permits, our state permits. We've administered a contract between the client and the GC and the GC and the factory. And the factory... um, gets a deposit from the GC, who gets it from the client, again, administered by our process. And that kicks off phase three where uh, it starts with procurement of all the materials, ordering everything. Um, and it takes maybe eight to 12 months. So over these last year, that's sort of had a big hiccup in it a little yeah. bit um, And while that's happening, the GC is digging a hole, putting in the foundation, utility, septic well, you know, grading it, preparing the site for the boxes. The boxes go online. They might take two to four weeks, depending, maybe another week in the yard. But, you know, phase three is typically, again, four months. Um, At the end of phase three, the boxes are done in the factory. They're shipped to the site overnight. Big crane usually takes them a day to set. And that kicks off phase four, which is the on site completion. And throughout all of these, we're going to the factory, we're going to the site, we have le- weekly meetings with the GC. We create minutes and photographs and follow it all the way through and sign off on all the cost requisitions from the GC to the client. So that we're, we're the client's agent, we're the one that makes, you know, coordinates everybody, pulls it all together to be sure it ends up looking like we expect it to. Makes sense.
0: And then, so like, I'm again, your houses are really beautiful, world class looking houses. What is uh <laughs> Thanks, so I, I just say that for people just to not one because it's true, and also because like I just want um, that to be framed in terms of sort of the next question, which is, of course, the cost question. Um, mm-hmm. What uh, so it looks like you've done a lot of houses. You can pick, I, we've also done a bunch of projects in sort of the Hamptons or in upstate New York. You can pick whatever geo you want. And let's assume a flattish, non-insane site, because I know that can add a lot of costs. But let's say you were building a house. You could pick your typical size, whatever, whatever, a couple thousand square feet or whatever. Um, how much do, does the house and the full project end up costing um, outside of land if you kind of broke down those components?
1: Well, again, it, it varies. Every project is different. But let's say you're a client and you're calling up and you're asking me this question. Sure. I'd say um, everybody wants to know how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take. And architects always have an incredibly difficult time with that because, a hey, you don't know what you're going to build. <laughs> you don't know what it's going to look like when you, when you first start. So the whole idea of prefab sort of alleviates a lot of that anxiety, but we're still sort of creating something from nothing. And at the end of the day, it's always about the cost. It's the biggest anxiety. Time and money, but the first one is always money. Um. In our experience, we recommend people, and again, this has changed over the last three months and over the last yeah. year and three years. So I'll yep. try to I'll try to give it some context. Through twenty twenty, we'd recommend budgeting on average for one of our houses, say, you know, five hundred bucks a square foot. You know, they were really about four fifty to you know 550 but 500 bucks a square foot approximately half of that $250 a square foot are the boxes completed about 80% in the factory and shipped to the site the other half of that about 250 a foot is for the gc in terms of digging a hole foundation making all the connections the siding the flooring the appliances the finished painting so that's where the house is so say if it's 2,000 square feet that'd be a right. million dollars now in addition does that
0: count, to that, does that count soft cost? Oh, sorry <laughs> that's where you're getting to
1: yeah no it, it, it doesn't and so it, it's soft cost for um, mechanical and structural engineering in the boxes. Right, it is not soft cost for architects. We're fifteen percent of the construction cost. Additional construction costs are, say, exterior terraces or decks or porches. Depending on where we are and what we're doing, we'll budget those from you know fifty to hundred bucks a foot. If we're doing any garages, we might budget those in around you know two hundred two fifty a foot. You know, pools are a hundred grand. Um, finished basements vary depending on what we're putting down there. So we have a range of costs per square foot for screen porches, breezeways, all the bits and pieces you'll see on our website. And we have those because we've been able to do similar things over time. And we sort of have this data now about the costs and when they are. And that's why I can sit here and say, well, 220, excuse me, 2020, um, You know, 500 bucks a foot was pretty good and we were building stuff. And then 2021, the numbers started coming out of the factory as opposed to between 225 and 275 averaging 250. They started going from 250 to 300 a foot averaging about 275. And in the last three months alone, the numbers are coming in between on our last three, five projects. between. Say two seventy-five and three twenty-five, averaging about three hundred bucks a square foot coming out of the factory. So this is a really recent thing. that's literally just happened since the end of December, um, and there's a number yeah. of reasons why. Um, I think everyone's experiencing it. Board.
0: Right, labor plus I'm supply chain. I said we're seeing the same thing across yeah. the board.
1: Yeah, I, everybody is everywhere, and part of it now is just being able to to actually get some of these things. So there's certain issues with windows right now. In the beginning, there was certain issues with rigid insulation. So what's happening is that's having an impact on the schedule because like I said, the, all of the materials are procured before it goes online. So there isn't a box sort of sitting half built going down the, going down the line so it's important to understand what all of those bits and pieces are coming in so we have um we've it's it's bumped a couple of our projects right now um some of the window lines by by months so we're in the we're in the middle of sort of dealing with that as everybody else is right now
0: yeah we we've seen we've seen windows specifically being actually the slowest especially like any kind of like custom like you know, very specific spec. (laughs) So like, and basically we're telling like everyone we work with, like the second, if you're getting like financing with a module, like make sure those are procured as early as possible. Cause that specifically we've seen hold up projects. Um, Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Uh, Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, So moving on uh, just in terms of last question about res for uh, if there's like maybe a p- specific project on your uh, site uh, on your site, it's actually probably better because people can then reference it when they listen to this that you're really proud of or wanted to maybe tell us the story of, <laughs> is there maybe one you'd be willing to walk through?
1: Uh, well, without looking at the images myself, yeah, probably sure. not. I mean, I, I mean you can, that's a, it's like trying to tell like, which, which is your favorite child you'd like to talk about right now. So
0: yeah. Um, no, I'll say no problem.
1: It, it's a very difficult thing. I mean, the most interesting things, whatever I happen to be working on right then at the moment. And like I said, we have, you know, ten to twenty projects happening at the same time. So it's it's exhilarating. Um, it's a, it's it's very rewarding. It's a lot of fun. I will mention then we just started on a project, on a lake up in New Hampshire. The um, the constraints are are uh, are are very tight. And that our building envelope is 142 foot long by 13 feet wide. It's a very long lake house, and so that's that's a, been a interesting, interesting challenge. That's pretty
0: cool. It's very a lot cool. of a lot of surface area for windows.
1: <laughs> um, so That just happens to be one where. We're we're also replacing a sort of a beach bungalow in Belmar, New Jersey, right now with a modular in a very modest neighborhood. So, we're doing a, a number. You know, it, it, you get me started talking about them, man, and I can't stop. We're doing an incredible one up in on the Hudson River. We're doing a, several in the Hudson Valley. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like you're doing a lot, lot of interesting stuff. That's they're awesome. all interesting. It's we're, we're yeah. very fortunate. They're all they're all a lot of fun with great clients and we have super talented employees. So it's it's a total blast.
0: And are there specific factories you work with over and over? I think I saw I don't I don't remember if it was your Instagram or theirs or someone um, I saw some of your boxes in the Simplex factory um, in Pennsylvania. Do you work with them a lot or do you work with We've other worked factories? We with
1: Simplex. They've built quite a few of our houses. I mean We've, we've built with um, I don't know if I mentioned, we've, we've built modular panelized hybrids from Maine to Hawaii um, using quite a quite a range of fulfillment partners. So um, and depending on where we build, we'll work with different factories. But yeah, Simplex is one of them that we've built many, many homes with. Um, and it depends on also what where where the location is because as you know, not all factories are licensed in all states, mm-hmm. so it depends I mean, on where we're building.
0: Got it. Um, okay, so this has been great to learn a bunch about your firm and your background. Uh, we try to take advantage of uh, whomever we have on the podcast to get them to answer a few kind of fire round questions, so we can tap into your expertise. Uh, assuming you're willing to do it, uh, you know, do your best to answer each of these questions in a minute or less, but. Mm-hmm. We won't sure, be too much of a sure. Um Can you talk a little bit, again, just from your site, um, obviously you've built a number of houses kind of in the Hamptons area or in different kind of beach, ocean side areas. Um, is there anything special you do for those um, with respect to elements or anything else?
1: You, you, the ones on the water you're saying? The ones on yeah. the beach? Mm-hmm. You know, often uh, a number of things. One, you know, anything with the salt there, you have to be very careful about everything you specify because um, it, it degrades incredibly quickly. Um, another thing often that happens when you build on the sand is uh, is making sure uh, the, the, um, the foundations vary greatly. Because sometimes you can use a uh, standard poured concrete foundation, which is most feasible. But a lot of times when the soils aren't stable, you need to do uh, piles or caissons or a lot of times they'll drive, you know, piers in and do concrete grade beams and then steel frames on top of it. So depending, the the um, the foundations change a lot depending on the on the foundations. Excuse me, depending on the sites on the beach. That's one aspect of it, and the other is just the the, the rust. You know, stain less yeah. doesn't mean it doesn't stain. It means it stains less. Right.
0: Got it. So you kind of just have to expect more maintenance and all that stuff,
1: and you got to be smart about, or at least attempt to to specify light fixtures and siding, and you know, um, as best you can. Given the often when you're working in, in the on the ocean, the local contractors are aware of those things, so you can learn a lot from the local GC about. Um, anything, any lessons they've learned as well. We, we try to learn as much as we can from every GC on every project we do, no matter where we are. That makes sense.
0: Uh, another thing we noticed is that you've obviously, as you said, built some homes in some premium locations. One of the things we've had a mixed bag with um, is oftentimes those locations uh, you end up having to uh, go through an HOA to, uh, to build in those places I'm not sure if that's Mm -hmm. an experience you've had, but if you have, which I'm guessing you have, uh, do you have any tips for navigating that process?
1: Well, uh, HOA isn't as as difficult as some of the other sort of environmental issues you need to go through and get approvals on, but it's the same. It's the same way with just getting a local you know, hitting the local codes and zoning is it's it's first understanding what those constraints are, right? So if the HOA, you find out what you can and cannot do, and there's typically something written, and even these days, it's often posted on a website. Yep. Um, but sometimes these things aren't explicit, and so there needs to be some due, due diligence done to see what you can and cannot do, whether it's a slope of a roof or the exterior materials, or there's a lot of communities that says you're not allowed to use build a uh, – manufactured home so whenever we've been uh had to address that we've often just sort of presented and had a discussion with the community board and so this is what we're doing this is how we're doing it this is why we're going to build it in a factory why because we're going to be on site less we're going to disturb the neighbors less and so we've we've worked in a few areas where we've been actually able to flip it the reason why they don't want any prefab is because they all think they're ugly trailers, right? But when you show them that's not what this is, when you show them that this is something other and we're using this technology for something that's greener and quicker and and more cost-effective, then we we typically get a unanimous buy-in.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> we have a standard deck for like almost exactly this reason, kind of explaining there will be, will be people you can't hear building the home versus... Your neighbors in your in your neighbor's lot or at least less of that
1: um yeah okay and then still a lot of noise but there's less on it yes
0: (laughs) maybe it'll it'll last for a less long period of
1: time exactly uh
0: uh, i guess and then the last question we get um is we actually this is actually more for sort of urban infill we get this request we get a lot of people who want to build uh roof decks um as a part of their modules especially we get this a lot in the Los Angeles area because someone wants to put an ADU in and uh, they're like, you know, I would love the extra bedroom or two or the chance to whatever, have my mother-in-law stay with us. But um, I don't want to give up like the outdoor space in our, you know, relatively small lot. Uh, we actually, we've seen a lot of resistance to this from certain modular and prefab builders. But I, uh, I noticed that you've done it at least um, a number of times for some of the homes on your site. Uh are there any keys um to kind of making that work that just cuz again it's something that we've seen pushback from in the past
1: Yeah well um I mean we we design it you know we don't ask them to do it we show them how to do it um, so a lot of the things were were you know when we um when we started this we got a lot of pushback as well and it took us um time to gain the trust and confidence from the factories. Um, and once we did that, and they saw that we were working with them as opposed to trying to tell them what to do, they opened up and listened to us and started to then embrace a number of, you know, the, the flash and bat system, the zip siding, the open web joys, the high velocity systems, you know, the custom AC slots, We were more open to working with us. So then we were being able to provide the details and show them how this would work and that they would just continue to frame hammer nails and shit like they typically do. Um, And after we were able to show them how that works several times, then it really opened up the floodgates of what they're willing to, you know, how, how, how far they're willing to bend. How's that? So we're not relying on them to figure it out. We're relying on them to execute it based on what they do best. And that's a, that's a really important thing for architects to learn is that it's important to leverage your fulfillment partner for what they're able to do as opposed to expect them to do something they've never done before, especially when it's done in a factory. So, most fulfillment partners aren't there to sort of figure stuff out. They're basically there to execute. So, it's an important thing to know. And if they don't typically do that, then it's sometimes it can take longer and be more difficult. Makes sense.
0: Um Okay. So, this has all been awesome answers. You certainly passed the fire around. Um, final question and We ask this to everyone. Uh, what are you most excited about for your company or for the industry for the near future?
1: Mm. Well I think that um I think that we're in a I mean we're in a very interesting situation which could be said of any generation um but one we find ourselves in right now is we're lacking housing um there's extreme lack of housing, much less, quote unquote, affordable housing. Um, and I think with this new, this new continued interest in prefabrication, as you very well know, it's not a new thing. It's been around for a long time. And it's always a sort of rebirth of prefab. But what's encouraging is that there's still traction, even with some of the big boys going down like Blue Homes and and others, um, there's still traction and there's still interest and people are still pursuing it. So what I find exciting is that there's still this incredible energy about it and it's more than just architects that are interested in it. They're you know, developers and, and VC and, you know, there's 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 interest bubbling, which is fantastic, and everybody's getting into the space. While at the same time, we need freaking housing. I think there's there's gonna be there's a great opportunity and we've yet to tap into it because I think the efficiency of building off-site has yet to truly um, get in sync um, and so I I, I I have great expectations I have had them for the last 20 years but I will continue to have them I think there's a lot of opportunity I think there's a sort of a perfect storm happening in terms of um, you know sustainability and efficiency. You know, I I think there's no reason why we can't do uh, large-scale, low-rise, high-density that are completely, um, you know, energy producers. In other words, a lot of our houses we use, the majority of all of our houses now have solar panels and geothermal co-generational system. And about 10 years ago, we, we did it with, we started with about six houses, I think, that actually generated more power than they consumed. In fact, we did one that was completely off the grid, but that gave us this sort of um, we're excited that this technology is becoming, you know more available. in fact we we just put Tesla shingles on a mid century uh, renovation. Um, we've had clients that have been, had been been talking about them for years and years and years, but this is the first product product we're actually project, we're actually able to get a hold of them. So I'm excited. There's a lot of new things happening. I'm excited that we don't have to educate our clients about being green and sustainable anymore, that they come to us with that. So there's, there's a lot of momentum behind this and hopefully we're going to, we're going to hit this tipping point um, soon of offsite construction, low rise, high density, um, um, you know, power generating housing. So we're producing and not consuming. I also think there's an, I think there's also an opportunity to, to build fulfillment partners, meaning factories and train people. In other words, I believe we could set up factories around the country building locally, right? Just in their particular areas, as opposed to trying to design the house that's going to house everybody. But there's a way in which outside of every major metropolitan area, we could probably, Develop a uh, a a a franchise, if you will, and a, and a network of fabrication and training people in these factories to be plumbers and to be le- electricians and carpenters and cabinet makers that then could go off and have their own companies, sort of being part of sort of the maintenance of ongoing homes that we need because everything's frigging falling apart. Not only do we are we short four billion. <laughs> Uh, housing units where the ones that exist are shit. So there's, there's a big opportunity. That's what I'm excited about.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely a very big opportunity. Um, And uh, thank you for doing your part. Uh, We'll keep watching you in resolution for architecture Um, for more information about Joseph and RE4A visit www.re4a.com. And as always uh, you can visit us anytime at prefabreview.com. Thanks again, Joseph.
1: Thanks, Michael.